This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. This summer marks the 30th anniversary of the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. At a high level, the ADA requires employers to provide accommodations to ensure that employees with disabilities receive equal benefits. For employees, this means that your job has to provide you with what's considered, quote unquote, reasonable accommodations for you to do your job. This can cover a wide range from making your workspace more accessible to guaranteeing a parking space to extra time for bathroom breaks to a change in job duties. That last one is important for people who are pregnant because pregnancy has been defined by the Supreme Court as a temporary disability, which means that employers have to give pregnant people accommodations. For example, a pregnant delivery worker can request to be exempt from lifting boxes over 25 pounds. The ADA also provides benefits and protections for employees on leave and former employees, which may include things like health and disability insurance and job protection. But just because those protections exist doesn't mean that all employers comply or that all employees even know their rights and how to advocate for themselves. And of course, things don't always go smoothly with disability accommodations, and there have been many lawsuits over the last three decades. Joining me to help parse out the intricacies with disability accommodations at work is Lydia XZ Brown. Lydia is a scholar and advocate in disability studies and technology policy and is also policy counsel for privacy and data project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Lydia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you today. So let's back it up and kind of go big picture first. What do you think are some of the biggest things that people don't understand about disability? Most people think of disability as a private individual problem and more importantly and concerningly as a problem. Mm. That word that's embedded in that phrase. Most people understand disability as something that needs to be responded to with charity, with pity, with medical treatment or with moralizing ideas that people with disabilities are responsible for creating all of our own problems. If we just had a better attitude, then we wouldn't experience any issues whatsoever. And what most people don't understand is that disabled people face a form of structural and systematic discrimination or oppression that we call ableism a set of values and beliefs that only some kinds of people are normal or even human and other kinds of people are broken, our bodies and minds are wrong, and that we are a problem or even a burden or a blight upon society. And those ideas show up throughout our political, legal structures, throughout our society and culture, in the ways that we respond to disability in social policy, as well as the ways in which we respond to and react to disability in our everyday lives. Those are really great points. And especially, you know, the 
the fact that it's, you know, a form of discrimination or something that people think need to be needs to be fixed. Right. And I think another thing that people don't understand is or, or a misconception is that it is something you can see. Can you can you talk a little bit about invisible disabilities or vi- or disabilities that, you know, people may not understand immediately? I actually don't tend to use the words visible or invisible disability. Mm. I prefer to think about disabilities as being more apparent Mm. or more hidden. And that itself is also highly contextual. For example, many people assume that people who use wheelchairs because they might be a double amputee, they might be quadriplegic, They might have cerebral palsy or any number of other conditions that for a particular person means that that person needs a wheelchair. People assume because you have a wheelchair, your disability is very obvious. It's readily apparent. But that's not even universally true for any given person who uses a wheelchair. That might not be true if the person who needs to use a wheelchair for movement is currently lying in their bed or lounging on the couch. If a person who uses a wheelchair is not actively in their wheelchair, is their disability readily apparent? And for other disabilities that people often think of as more hidden, that are not readily apparent, that might not necessarily be true either. For example, most people might think that someone who experiences psychosis at first thought has a disability that is very hidden because you can't necessarily tell by looking at a person's body if they experience psychosis. But if a person who is experiencing psychosis is actively responding to visual or auditory stimuli that are not present, if a person who is experiencing psychosis is actively describing intrusive thoughts that they are experiencing in that moment, their disability might now be more apparent because people who are around them might be able to observe that they are experiencing a reality that is different from the reality of people around them who do not have psychosis. The answer to the question, can a disability really be hidden or apparent is much more complicated than a binary way of thinking. Mm. And that's something that I, I challenge a lot in conversations about disability. The idea that disability is always a binary between someone is definitely always disabled. And if you have a disability, it affects you in these specific ways forever or you definitely do not have a disability, you will never experience anything that is even remotely disabling. And in reality, most people's experiences of disability, whether chronic or episodic, tend to be in flux. The trouble that many of us run into at work, at school, or even in our everyday interactions with others is that when our disabilities are readily perceived and are apparent, that tends to lead to experiences with ableism that presume that we are incompetent, that result in people being patronizing and paternalistic, that can result in overt discrimination, displays of prejudice, and even violence and harm. And on the flip side of that, when someone's disability might not be readily apparent, that can also lead to other forms of ableism including denying, dismissing, or disbelieving that a person might actually have a disability, especially if that person is requesting access, accommodations, or support, or assuming there is something nebulously and ambiguously wrong with a person, but without being able to name what it is, and then that resulting 
and even worse targeted prejudice Mm. toward that person because of an unnamed, unidentified disability. Now that even that word is not being that now, now, even though that word is not being used in that context, right, that there is still a perception that there is something about this person that marks them as other or different in a bad way. And so that that person will still be responded to with some form of ableism, even if it is not overt and explicitly because of a known disability. Oh, there's so much in there. Thank you so much for that. That's, I mean, that's a lot that I didn't know. And I think a lot that probably our listeners didn't know. And and that's such great points. And when something is apparent or not apparent and how that, that can be in flux and that, that ties in a lot to what I want to talk a lot about, which is hiring and disability at work. So if you are a disabled person, when in the hiring process, do you think it's best to disclose your disability and ask for accommodations? Conventional wisdom among disabled people in our communities is that you never disclose a disability until after you signed a job offer or a contract. And the reason for that is very simple. We experience extraordinary amounts and disproportionate rates of discrimination and retaliation in the workplace. Disabled people statistically are more likely to live in poverty. Disabled people face higher rates of unemployment, underemployment, and precarious employment. And many disabled people report having been functionally forced to leave a workplace due to a hostile environment. And as a result, disabled people know, and we often share with each other, that you generally should not tell an employer that you have a disability until after you've accepted and signed the offer or contract. At that point, you should still only disclose being disabled to an employer if you actually are requesting a workplace accommodation. That if you do not need a workplace accommodation in order to perform the functions of a particular job, then there is no need to disclose and you probably shouldn't in order to avoid the possibility of discriminatory response to your existence in the workplace. Mm. This can be complicated because not all people necessarily are in a position where they have a choice about disclosure. Yeah. If you are a blind person who has a service dog, if you are a deaf person who is not able to use spoken English, then you don't have to explicitly say, I have a disability. Your employer will probably figure out that you have a disability sooner or later, with some exceptions. Many of us also have more than one disability. This is a frequent topic of conversation that a person who might have one disability that is readily apparent because of a mobility aid might actually primarily need workplace accommodations around another disability that might be relatively hidden. A person who uses a wheelchair, who is working in a building that is actually quite accessible, that has accessible entry rate, entryways, plenty of turning space in the hallways, very usable bathrooms with wide space and grab bars. Their desk is easily able to be lowered closer or raised depending on their particular configuration, might actually really need to request workplace accommodations because of their ADD, because of chronic migraines, or because of cancer, most of which are not readily apparent 
most of the time. How I'm wondering if you, you know, you you touched on this, if you are a, a person with a disability applying for a job and an employer asks an inappropriate question during the hiring process, how do you deal with that? Like what's what's a good response? It depends on what the inappropriate question is. And frankly, it also depends on the person. Not everybody feels comfortable responding to what can frankly sometimes be outright insulting comments. And really this question is hard to deal with because it places the burden on the disabled person to have to figure out what is the right thing to say. And in reality, we need to be reminding employers, recruiters, HR people, that they have a responsibility to educate themselves to at a bare minimum, not be assholes, right? (laughs) Yeah. One of my friends and I have talked a lot about training and best practices for employers around discrimination and civil rights affecting many marginalized communities. And we both often describe a lot of the conversations we have with employers and resources as guides for how to not be an asshole. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're asking for. We don't need employers to be experts on disability. We need employers to not be assholes because disabled people, given those disparities that we face economically and socially, we need money to pay our bills, to eat food, and unfortunately, given the way our systems are set up here, to access health care, to pay for housing, right? We need money to pay our bills. And we need our employers to take the onus of education on themselves so that we're not the ones left holding the bag. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're hitting right on it because that was my next question. Let's take it a step beyond. Let's raise the bar a little bit beyond not being an asshole and you know, say you're you're in a hiring position, you're a hiring manager that's listening to this right now. How can an employer structure their hiring process to be more equitable in regards to disability? Uh, we could literally talk about this for hours. Mm-hmm. For one, employers need to be transparent and open with applicants for a job. That includes be transparent about the hiring process, how long you anticipate it taking, what the stages of that process are, what the criteria are that you're using to evaluate applicants on, what you're going to pay in the position, what the benefits will be for that position, who are the people responsible for making the hiring decision. Those are all things that employers need to communicate to applicants upfront because you and an applicant are interviewing each other. That's conventional wisdom we already know, but if we know that that's true, then why aren't we acting on it? Candidates need this information to be able to make a decision upfront about whether the position at your company is one that they should be applying for. Number two, in your actual hiring process, you need to devise criteria and use assessments, whether that is skills-based assessments, whether that is conventional interviews, or whatever other processes you might use in the course of a person's candidacy for a job that actually reflect and directly correlate to the skills and competencies that are directly related to and required for performing the actual functions of the job. So more concretely, if you were asking somebody to perform in front of a group interview and a panel of four interviewers, and the 
job is to be an administrative assistant or to be a data analyst or to be the stalker in the back room of a retail store, why was that interview process necessary? Why does this person have to be in a group interview in front of a panel of interviewers? What skill or competency does that process elicit that is required for those jobs? And on the other token, if you're using an automated tool, like a a tool in which people have to play some kind of gamified assessment, what does that tool have to do with, for example, being a policy lawyer or being a cashier or being a preschool teacher? What actual job required skill does some gamified assessment about your attention span or risk-taking behavior have to do with the ability to be successful at most jobs. And number three is, are employers designing their application and recruitment process around access? Creating an application process that assumes that all applicants can participate in it using one particular way of interacting with it, whether that is able to talk or able to see, means that people who don't have those particular capacities have to request accommodations and functionally out themselves as disabled. And if the tools and assessments that you are using, no matter what those look like, assume that all people can demonstrate their prowess or their competencies using a particular one narrowly defined way of doing so, then you are not enabling a wide range of people to be able to do this job. And the very last thing that I would add to this, again, noting we could talk about it for hours, is that the way you write your job descriptions, not just in that first point about transparency, but what you actually put in them, can signal whether you care about access or not. Why are there still job descriptions that have standard language of must be able to lift up to 50 pounds, must be able to open things with hands? I'm thinking, why in any job is this a requirement unless your job is literally cargo loader and unloader? If that is your job, then yes, I can see being able to lift a certain a certain amount of weight is actually a core part of that job. But if you're an engineer, or a secretary, do you have to be able to lift things? If you can't, can't somebody else at work do it? People ask people at work for help with things all the time. Can you help me carry this box? Can you help me open this thing? Hey, can you grab me a coffee? Can you grab me a pen? We all do that at work. And yet we have job descriptions that even in the way they are written are already exclusionary. So everything you just said, I'm sure, you know, everybody listening to this is, was having the same thoughts as me was, well, these are just good practices in general for hiring. You know, they're not I don't think that they're, you know, most of them, if not all of them are things that are just aimed at, at people with disabilities or making things, you know, more equitable there. I think a lot of them are just good hiring practices. Job descriptions should be more transparent. The hiring process should be more transparent regardless of who who is applying you know the the process of of really thinking about what's necessary in an interview format makes 100% sense for absolutely everybody and you know it's that same thing of of making things more equitable doesn't make it, it just makes it better for everybody right 
you know, and you, you touched on, on this a little bit with, you know, the screening process. Um, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on how resume screening tools and other AI tools that are more and more commonly being used in the hiring process are both flawed and how, and on the flip side of that, how they are creating or expanding opportunities. In my professional work, we've researched extensively what kinds of AI hiring tools employers use to identify or screen out applicants for jobs ranging from wage-paid, hourly, low-paid jobs to higher-paid, salaried, and white-collar jobs and everything in between. And one of the most common and widespread types of tools are resume screening and resume mining softwares that might look for certain keywords in a person's resume that have been correlated in the past with people assumed to be or who were considered within a particular company successful, people who were promoted, people who were hired. The obvious problem with such types of software is that they, by definition, will be trained on data sets that will already have been discriminatory in a structural and prolonged way. If a company generally only hires people who've gone to Ivy League colleges, that means that any data set about previously successful employees is going to reflect the biases of which types of people are likely to be admitted to Ivy League colleges, as in people that are more likely to come from wealthy backgrounds, people that are more likely to be white, and probably people that are less likely to be disabled. Those keywords might also correlate to specific opportunities like leadership opportunities, internships, fellowships, honors programs that disabled students are disproportionately less likely to have access to, not because of innate lack of ability, but because of discrimination, because of inaccess, because of economic inequality. For all of those reasons, we might be less likely to have studied abroad or to have been part of a very prestigious fraternity or to have been able to take part in a fellowship or research program in the summers or to go to a four-year prestigious college. We know that disabled students make up a higher percentage of the community college population as well as of non-traditional students who go to college later in life, not to mention resume screening that screens out people that might have gaps on their resume. And, you know, we might think if somebody's had a gap of a year or more on their resume, that might be indicative that they wouldn't necessarily be the best performer at a particular job. But you think about that for longer than a second and you realize that you've just precluded potentially people who've been pregnant, people who've given birth or adopted a child, or who are the other parent of a newborn, people who have gone through a prolonged divorce, people who left a domestic violence, a a home with domestic violence, people who have fled war and become refugees, people who've been homeless for prolonged periods of time and had trouble with a job because you need an address to apply for most jobs, people who've been incarcerated for any reason, for any length of time, and who've therefore had periods of unemployment or who had a harder time getting employment after their release, People with disabilities whose disabilities might have affected ability to work because they were prolonged or they were episodic or just the compounded impact of discrimination. You add automation to that and an automated 
decision that anyone who has a gap of longer than six months will automatically be screened out or a gap longer than 12 months will be screened out for the position. And you've just disproportionately adversely affected whole swaths of the population, even though many employers who adopt them and vendors who market them might claim that they make the hiring process more fair by removing human bias from it. In reality, they amplify human bias and they expand and apply that bias at scale. The questions that are written in or the the things that are screened out, as you say, were created by humans to begin with that are, you know, have a lot of inherent baked in bias there. So we talked earlier, you mentioned earlier a little bit about remote work and that's, you know, kind of the the biggest thing right now. It's it was a trend that we were seeing more, but obviously the pandemic accelerated in a lot of industries, accelerated the work from home opportunities and a lot of companies even going forward post pandemic are looking at keeping either hybrid work or remote work completely. What opportunities has this created for workplaces to be more inclusive of disabled workers and and or I guess on the flip side, you know, has this has that made things more difficult? Disabled people have had a lot of conversations about this. And in my personal life and my organizing work, I've just witnessed over and over again our simultaneous elation that for many of us, so many opportunities and ways of engaging with the world are now accessible. And at the same time, I've witnessed over and over again people's frustration that moving things online has rendered a lot of opportunities, both professionally and personally, completely inaccessible or significantly more difficult for many disabled people. Over 98% of all web content fails to meet WCAG 2.0 guidelines for web and computing accessibility. Now, that doesn't mean that they are inaccessible to every disabled person, but that web and computing tools are often inaccessible to many different disabled people. And on top of that, disabled people, because again, we're disproportionately more likely to be poor, we're disproportionately less likely to be employed or to be competitively employed rather than underemployed, are less likely to have broadband access, to be able to afford devices like laptops, desktop computers, or smartphones. And therefore, even if a particular website, platform, or tool for work meetings or for socializing were accessible to that particular person, they might not have a way of getting to it. They may not have reliable access to begin with in terms of infrastructure. So for many disabled people, moving work remotely has both increased access significantly and decreased access at the same time. The fear that I have and that many others in our community share is that as the pandemic eventually wanes and employers are able, should they so choose, to return operations to in-person work settings by and large, that many of the access measures that we've seen emerge during the pandemic for the benefit largely of non-disabled people will disappear, especially as many employers may wish to overcompensate for the apparent or perceived belief that remote work is of less quality or less desirable than on-site work the disabled people will have an even harder time 
being supported or having access when access means more flexibility and not necessarily having to go somewhere in person. And we fear that both in the ways that remote work has enabled and inhibited access, that disabled people will be left behind. Uh, Lydia, thank you so much. I think you've you've given me a lot to think about. I think you've given our listeners a lot to think about. Lydia XZ Brown, scholar and advocate in disability studies and technology policy and policy counsel for privacy and data project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thank you so much for being here. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. I also really encourage you to go back and listen to our past episodes. This season so far, we've covered code switching, the pay gap, and more. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen. Thank you.